Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. To fight rising inflation, the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates as a fifth wave of COVID explodes worldwide with New York City logging its largest number of confirmed single-day infections uh, last week. Uh, And the Omicron variant of COVID has been confirmed as being more contagious. Uh, Debate continues as to whether or not it is more deadly. Overnight, Test kits literally were brought up all across the eastern seaboard and nationwide uh, as family gatherings loom and either full or partial lockdowns are returning. This as pushbacks continue against vaccinations and masks. To date, at least 806,000 Americans and 5.4 million worldwide have died during the pandemic. Congress passed the National Defense Authorization Act and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's Brexit negotiator, Lord Frost, resigned. And for Boeing, more 787 and space launch systems headaches as Italian authorities investigate subcontractor MPS that supplied defective titanium parts that subcontractor Leonardo has installed in the carbon composite airframe components for this 787 Dreamliner. That's a problem as the parts are literally baked into the structure of the aircraft. And we look back at 2021 and what it tells us about what to expect in 2022. And on a production note, this is the last business roundtable of the year. Our last show of the year will will be a special program on December 23rd to commemorate Festivus. Uh, And tune in for our two new weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, uh, that takes a deep dive into all things naval and maritime with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, and our downlink podcast with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes us uh, through the top space issues of the week. Check them out. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy. Joining us as they do every week are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Teal Group Consultancy. Uh, here in Washington, D.C., although uh, we will also discuss uh, a change uh, to uh, Richard's uh, status after a long period of time. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, great to be here, Vago. wouldn't be a weekend without it. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you so much. Great to be on, Vago. Thanks. Uh, indeed. Thanks very much. And Richard, before we get started, right, well, more than three decades with the Teal Group Consultancy, and you're going to be starting the new year with a new gig. Tell us quickly about it. Yeah, thanks very much for that. And after 32 fantastic years at Teal Group, it's time for a change. And on January 1st, after a 15-minute champagne break, I will start at Aerodynamic Advisory uh, as a managing director and hugely looking forward to the change, despite, um, again, happy, happy memories and thoughts of 32 years at Teal. And of course, you'll be working there with Dr. Kevin Michaels, uh, who is one of the nation's leading aerospace supply chain uh, guys. So it's going to be a marriage of two uh, great capabilities. Yeah, I'm thrilled for that. I've known Kevin for over a quarter of a century. And of course, he wrote what I think is the definitive book on the industry, Aerodynamic. Exactly. How funny that it would be called uh, Aerodynamic Advisory. What a kill surprise, as they would say in French. Uh, Ron, uh, let's uh, let's start with uh, inflation in the Fed. The Fed uh, Fed's Open Markets Committee 
has recommended increasing interest rates more quickly from uh, 0% to 1.6 in 2023 and then up to 2.1% in 2024. Uh, there's uh, a lot of debate, right? I mean, is this going to terrify markets? Uh, Fed is moving too quickly. I mean, I think the Fed could not have been doing a better job, frankly, of telegraphing this. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, this is sort of an iceberg that's that's been been coming. Um, how's the market reacting to this news? So yeah, the the market had an interesting reaction to to the Fed. So the Fed, you know, kind of came out and said, "Hey, you know what? We're gonna um, uh, ease. Uh, we're gonna you know uh, slow down easing quicker than." Maybe the market was expecting, uh, and what you saw in the equity markets were equity markets on the week were, were volatile and ended the week down uh, on the Fed news. That said, however, if you look at the fixed income markets, um, the bond yields also came down. So this is one of those things where it's like cognitive dissonance, where you have two things going on in the equity markets pricing in you know the, the Fed, um, you know, getting tighter and uh, on two things. One. Um, buying back fewer uh, treasury securities, so the quantitative easing slowing, uh, and and that implies that you know interest rates will go up, um, but also you know bond yields going down, saying that maybe interest rates won't go up that much. So if it, it kind of if you mix it all up and look at what the market's saying, it, it, it's it's giving the Fed the benefit of the doubt, saying hey, you know what, <clears throat> the Fed might actually have this under control. And in inflation might not be as bad as, as we once once thought. So so we'll see. But it's a, a pretty complicated market dynamic, to be honest with you, Barbara. And uh, and how did the sector perform this week? Yeah, the sector the sector was um, you know largely um, it, it ended the week better than the market. Um, so uh, if you saw the commercial aerospace stocks, even though uh, we've got this next wave of COVID. Uh, uh, it's a storm, if you want to phrase it that way. Um, we saw some of the commercial aerospace names up at the end of the week. Um, defense was, you know, kind of you know, in, above the market. So broadly, A and D did better than 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 the market. Um, and think about it when you look at the major indices are really driven by some of the big tech names, and and those are the names that kind of sold off harder. Uh, and the industrial names were, you know, less volatile. But but on the week, A and D uh, was um, uh, you know, outperforming the market, but roughly flat. And uh, uh, Congress uh, finally passed the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, did that uh, impact? I mean, what, what was your take uh, on the document and what it means for the group? Yeah. So, I mean, a, a couple couple quick thoughts on that. Uh, I had a couple of questions from clients saying, hey, you know what, uh, since this passed, does that mean there's still a threat for a CR? And yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the things in the investment community, sometimes that isn't clear, is that, you know, the difference between the authorizers and the appropriators, right? Um, when you look at the NDAA itself, um, it, it came in at what, about 770 billion, right? You know, plus or minus billion. Uh, and I think that's about what we were all looking for. Um, you know, naval assets were, were well supported. Um, maybe you can correct me here. I think there's the A-10 still in it, right? And I think that's something the Air Force wanted to get rid of. F-35 was at the levels um, that uh, were you know, telegraphed before. So I don't think there was a lot of surprises out of it, honestly. Um, but I, I think the market might have read it as, hey, this might be there isn't going to be a CR or somehow, you know, the defense appropriations will get around a CR, you know, a, a full year CR if it happens. Um, and, you know, sadly, it doesn't indicate that. Um, uh, Ron, uh, people who are confused about the impacts of a continuing resolution just aren't people on Wall Street. There are people who are actually sitting in Congress who don't fully understand uh, what it does, uh, sadly. Um, Sash, uh, not to make you sort of the harbinger of, of darkness and of COVID, uh, but obviously you guys are about um, 14 to 21 days ahead of the United States. 
Um, obviously, the Omicron uh, variant is spreading. UK even setting high uh, caseload uh, levels. Netherlands locking down. Israel uh, closed its borders to, uh, to non-Israelis. Um, to non-citizens uh, a couple of weeks ago when this news first broke. Uh, and then, you know, all variety in between there regarding masks and, va- masks and vaccinations, obviously uh, a lot easier to get text- tested and vaccinated in the UK uh, as opposed to here. Walk us through where we are and, and what's this going to mean for travel? What's it going to mean for the group? What's it going to mean for the industry? Yeah, okay. So the... Um... Uh, you know, I mean, regrettably, I think you're right. I think the UK is just ahead of the US in a in a uh, in a matter of a, of a couple of weeks. It's been a very odd week for the. I'll, I'll start with the UK, and then I'll, I'll I'll try to be a little bit less parochial and, and talk about the European implications. But in the UK, we've had some incredibly um, strict. Uh, and really pretty alarming signaling coming out from uh, the government and its scientific advisors. Uh, you know, it started with a, um, a press conference at the very, very beginning of the week that while it didn't actually um, say that there was going to be lockdown, pretty much suggested that everybody should consider that to, to be the case and adjust their behaviour accordingly. And at that stage, Omicron was... Uh, believed to be doubling uh, in its uh, severity or or around the number of cases about between every two and a half and every three days. Fast forward five, six days, and the caseloads are very high. The caseloads are running at about, you know, somewhere between 80 and 90,000 cases a day. And before this all started, UK caseloads were around 20,000 a day. But they have actually haven't been going up very much over a sort of four-day period. They, I mean, they've been very, very high, but they've, they've certainly not been doubling yet. So it's extremely difficult to know what's going on. However, what is happening, travel is slowing down. Um, and having had various of my relatives coming through airports uh, in the last couple of days, uh, you know, they, they say that you're starting to see the airports empty out again, both uh, our departures and arrivals, because either that people don't want to fly because they're frightened of catching coronavirus or because they cannot get into the country they want to because they at the moment they won't have Brits. But I mean, that's a temporary thing. Fairly soon it'll be just, you know, if you're from a country that's got a lot of Omicron, then nobody will have you. Uh, uh, well, I'm, I'm taking the rather charitable view that this isn't actually a particularly personal. Um, and so, you know, it, it's a pretty tough end uh, to the year in, um, uh, in, in that respect. Although, you know, I have to say, purely from the very, very narrow point of view of the UK, what we've not yet seen is an increase in hospitalizations. Hospitalizations are, you know, are trickling up, but we are not seeing this, you know, that that sort of 90,000 cases is not coming through dramatically in in hospitalizations yet. We'll see. I think, you know, Christmas week could be interesting, but there there are a lot of signs that people are starting to self-regulate their their behavior. But clearly the global travel industry doesn't need this. And I mean, look, you know, looking more broadly across Europe, some countries are going into lockdowns. The Netherlands is already very much in lockdown. France has locked down to UK travellers, period. Germany has locked down to UK travellers, period. But Germany ha- has a series of statewide um, issues that, uh, or, or control measures that uh, make some of them look as if they're in lockdown. I think it, you know, we're going to end 2021 in a, in a, in a very, very difficult, very travel-hostile um, uh, environment across Europe, and you know, Europe te- tends to lead uh, other countries uh, in in terms of, of how these things are are addressed. It, it's a very, very interesting situation indeed. Um, 
and trying to work out literally from day to day how bad it is is very very difficult. Richard, uh, you're 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 still the bull uh, on the travel forecast, although uh, you were on the leading edge of that. Others have followed. Uh, Michael O'Leary, um, the um, uh, the CEO of Ryanair, who who always has trouble expressing himself, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, basically is saying that you know if you're an anti-vaxxer or you're not vaccinated. You should not be allowed to fly on a, a commercial aircraft, right? I mean, he's taking, I think, a much tougher uh, stance. But there are a lot of people who would who would echo that, right? I mean, you you guys are are not just expressing your will and your reticence. You're actually putting all all of the rest of the people uh, at risk. And obviously, you know, in the United States, I mean, let's just be honest. Despite all of this pressure, despite these you know massive efforts, the availability of shots, the availability of boosters, only 61% of the American population is vaccinated, right? UK, almost every other country far outstrips the United States in the number of vaccinated. Uh, from from your standpoint, where where are we headed travel-wise, uh, especially with this, this latest wave? Because, yeah. I mean, right, the Southwest CEO was exposed to COVID apparently at a congressional hearing at which he was saying that masks should, you know, the masks are a great way of containing COVID on airplanes, which is funny in a not funny sort of way. Yeah. You know, I mean, my bullishness is a little bit at bay at this point. I mean, it's hard to not be taken aback by the events of the last week in terms of caseloads and everything else. Um, you know, we're going to know an awful lot in the next couple of weeks, as uh, Sash says, you know, hospitalizations aren't yet up and there's still the hope that even though Omicron is a lot more contagious than maybe it's just much less severe, uh, we don't know. And everyone says the next couple of weeks are going to be crucial in terms of that information coming through. But right now, you know, uh, yes, self-regulation seems to be the order of the day. Uh, we're certainly rethinking. Um, yeah. I think everyone is pulling back just a little bit, waiting and watching and hoping that everything is not as bad as the headlines about caseloads seem to indicate. You know, there was uh, there was uh, one um, report this morning that we could see a million new cases a day in the U.S. if things are playing out like they might. And if there is no, well, diminishment in severity or lethality in that the new uh, the new variant, that's, of course, an extremely serious situation. So there's so much we don't know. And I'm feeling a bit more cautious now than I have in some time. Uh, Ron, uh, your, your sense on all of this before we move uh, to Airbus uh, that had a big week and, and Boeing that, that, that had an interesting week. Yeah, you know, our view hasn't changed at all. I mean, our outlook for air traffic is you get back to 2019 levels sometime in 2023 and 2024, you get to it on an annual basis. And in that forecast, we built in um, you know, you're going to have fits and starts because of situations like this. So we had Delta and now it's Omicron and there'll, there'll be others. Um, within that modeling uh, is the assumption that at least the duration or severity of these things uh, gets from maybe from a travel perspective, gets more manageable over time. And, and so that hasn't changed. So we're still sticking with our forecast and it, it kind of is what it is right now. And hopefully uh, this one you know, comes and goes quicker than, than Delta and, and the one before that. Uh, from your mouth to God's ears, as the saying goes. Uh, Sash, uh, bring us up to speed, right? Singapore A350F uh, for, for freighter order, and then some Qantas uh, Air France KLM uh, news. Walk us through uh, on the Airbus uh, side of the equation, and then and then Richard, you can you can start us. Uh, you can follow up on that 
uh, but then also uh, talk to us a little bit about Boeing's 787 challenge, what that means, and and then uh, the space launch system delay as well. Go go ahead, Sash. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I mean, Airbus had a good a good week for orders, um, real strategic orders. Normally, I mean, strategic is normally a euphemism in this industry for they just gave the planes away. Um, actually, in this case, these were orders that um, where they were conquest orders and where they were starting to see traction of a new of new products new products um the a350 freighter singapore ordered um uh seven aircraft air france uh ordered for airbus will probably end the year with around two years production of a uh, of a350 freighters admittedly they're not producing it or they won't be producing it at a very high rate but you've got to remember if they can add one a350 a month to an a350 production line currently running in a good month at six, but more realistically at five per month, you know, the volume uh, uplift for Airbus is material for that line. Um, so that's good. The conquests, though, were pretty eye dropping. Qantas, a life feels like a lifelong 737 uh, operator. Uh, switched its entire uh, narrowbody strategy now. I mean, it already had some A320s for its Jetstar subsidiary, but it's now buying a mix of A320 uh, Neos and uh, A220s. And what I thought was particularly interesting about the Qantas order, apart from fact it's a, it's a, a conquest from the 737, is that Airbus is effectively saying to Qantas, you can mix and match between any of the A320 Neo uh, range and there's five different models, including the various A321s, and any of the A220s. Currently, two of those: the Dash 100, the Dash 300. You want to bet there's going to be a Dash 500 next year? That's that's where my money is going. But you can just mix and match between those. You know, nine months before delivery, just tell us what you want, and we'll we'll build the aircraft for you. That's incredible flexibility for the operator, and that means that the air, you know an airline can order. They can just put a place marker down and they can get an aircraft any size between 100 seats and 250 seats. Uh, and by the way, all in this case, all powered by the Pratt & Whitney gear turbofan. That really helped them there as well. And then at the end of the week, Air France KLM, another incredibly loyal 737 operator, switched to the A321 and possibly some A320s as well. So now the whole Air France KLM group um, is going to be an A320 operator. KLM, and this is really an order from KLM, um, has been operating 737s pretty much since inception. You know, the King of Netherlands has been flying a, um, 737s as a guest pilot over that period. We're going to have to retrain him now. Um, you know, the, the, these are two really important, um, uh, you know, deep customers for the 737 that have just decided Boeing hasn't got anything that they want and that the A321 in particular, but also just the flexibility from Airbus is unbeatable. Richard? Uh, your sense uh, on the news flow, uh, and we, we should point out, right, I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, speaking of freighters, uh, Boeing did a more distributed approach to modifying its uh, uh, 737s into uh, freighter configuration, if I don't have that wrong. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, this is rapidly turning into something of an embarrassment in terms of market share, uh, largely because of the strength of the Seagull family at Airbus, exactly as chronicled by Sash. Um, you know, you simply have to have an A321neo if you're an airline. And Airbus is giving people all the reason in the world to make it a complete package rather than, um, you know, a split order. And again, you have to have some 321neo, so why not go all the way? Uh, and I think 
Sash is also quite right about the 1820-2500 in the next year or two. And when you think about it, the one great strength that Boeing has is the 737 MAX 8. It's a really good plane. It's fully, in terms of numbers, fully equal to the 320 NEO. Uh, operating numbers look great, too. But what if they do an A22500 aimed right exactly at that? And it has even better operating numbers because it'll be a lighter, thinner jet. It might not have the same capabilities, but you couple that with the rest of the Airbus family and the flexibility they're showing to both sales and production, and you have a recipe for comprehensive victory. And meanwhile, um, at Boeing, there appears to be not a whole lot of what technical experts call leadership. It's just a very strange situation. And talk about harmonization, a problem on the sales front is also continued, they continue to match it with a problem on the production front. It's quite likely now that there won't be any 787s in the first half of the next year. Um, no one seems to explain why they can't make the relationship with the FAA better and the production line problem solved. This is all one of the biggest mysteries in aviation. And as with everything else with Boeing, my God, just prove me wrong. And meanwhile, they're ending the year with uh, 350 maxes in inventory or something like that, which is uh, way, way, way higher than expectations. So again, a problem, not just selling planes, but delivering them too. And they're just not talking. So this is just a very strange situation. Ron, uh, let me uh, bring you into the into the discussion in terms of what do you think the Airbus uh, news means, whether or not you think it drives any change in, in Boeing's behavior, right? I mean, a little bit standoffish and noncommittal uh, or maybe hostile, depending on how you want to look at that, about the idea of a new middle of the market airplane, which we have said on this program, and I think everybody in the industry acknowledges should look a little bit like a 757. Uh, and what in particular the 787, right? I mean, that MPS issue, right? I mean, these were brackets and other components that MPS provided to Leonardo that then installed them into this, you know, carbon composite aerostructure components and then shipped them to, to, to Boeing and what that means and how do you correct it, right? I mean, because this isn't like a conventional bracket and part that can be unbracketed and easily taken out, right? I mean, this is cast into a composite piece of component, right? I mean, Walk us through what that story and then a little bit on what, you know, the SLS delay tells us as well. Big, 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 big charter there in terms of getting your sense on all of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, a, a couple of comments. You know, as Richard pointed out, they're going to end the year with 350 maxes in inventory and over 120 787s. Uh, and then if they don't deliver any 787s until mid-year, which it looks like that's going to happen somewhere between April and mid-year, they'll probably have close to 140 of them in inventory. And we've seen this story play out before. It's the same thing where they're going to, they've already in violation of a material adverse change clause. Every airline that has one on order can walk away from it. So they're all going to renegotiate price. So that means the margins on this airplane um, are going to be going down. I mean, from a gap perspective, they're pretty skinny anyway. Um, it was a nice cash flow generator for them, but it's going to back off on the cash that it could generate for them. So that's, that's all not good. Um, I mean, it's clear uh, that not doing something to counter the A321, as we've been saying now for the better part of two years, uh, was a big mistake. Uh, but now they're really painted into a corner because this is some of the feedback we've been getting from customers. It's don't launch a new airplane until you can get your house together. Um, you got to get everything in order before you do that because, you know, why, you know, 
do we really want to order a new airplane from a company that can't get the stuff that they're currently doing out the door? And then even 777X, you didn't mention that. That's been delayed. So they're sort of painted in this corner. Even if they were to launch something now, I don't know how much recep- reception, how well it would be received by the airlines. Further, you know, we did, did a survey uh, a couple of weeks back with uh, Aviation Week magazine. And one of the questions we asked is, you know, is, has Boeing's performance on uh, 737 MAX and 787, is that going to impact your future buying decisions? So just, you know, kind of the classic branding question. And 60% of the airlines, and we surveyed over 300 airlines globally uh, across different regions. And the, the answer was the same across all regions. In fact, it was a little worse in Asia. I said, yeah, it will impact our buying decisions. So maybe you're starting to see that kind of flow through now. So they're in a situation where they have to kind of, for a lack of better words, get everything together uh, before they can move on and, and to do something new. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a tough situation for them. And if you look at what's happened with the, uh, the SLS. Um, a, sadly, no big surprise, right? I mean, you know, SpaceX is going to have how many launches by the time this Boeing thing gets up there, if you know, if it even works when they do it. Um, and it's just sad that it, it sort of has to be that way, be it that this is a company that at one point really was a broad champion of engineering, and it's just degraded to where it is today. Uh, you know, like Richard said, you, know, you just want to cheer for them, and, and hopefully we're all wrong and this all pans out. But it seems like with each passing week that, you know, the, the probability of that happening gets lower and lower. Uh, and then finally, on the 787 stuff with uh, uh, the, the faulty titanium parts, I mean, if it turns out that those things are uh, a safety of flight issue, um, they're going to have to be dug out and, and replaced. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be what it's going to be. Um, so, you know, the hope is that that's not the case, but, you know, it, if it's not a major safety of flight issue, when the aircraft come in for their D-check, they're going to have to you know, take it apart even farther and, and dig out that component and, uh, and replace it. So it's, there's no, there's probably no easy solution for it. Uh, right. I mean, and, and that's the challenge for going to a game changing design, right? I mean, um, how would that, uh, just very briefly, right from an engineering standpoint, I think people understand that you know, an, an aluminum uh, or conventional airplane, uh, even if it has composite componentry in it, is a little bit different than the way the 787 was built, right? I mean, it completely redesigned not just wings, but a carbon tube fuselage, right? I mean, so these parts are molded into it. You have, you know, microphones that are built into the structure uh, so that you can spot cracking and squeaking and a whole bunch of other things, right? I mean, it's very, very sophisticated number of things that are in that fiberglass, uh, excuse me, in, in that composite tube. What are the challenges associated with cutting stuff out of it, right? I mean, aren't many of these things sort of built somewhat more through life on the structure of the airplane? Yeah, so the, the issue when you use carbon fiber composite aerostructure as opposed to aluminum is Aluminum, you know how it fails, right? We have a long history with it. It fails in a very predictable kind of linear fashion. Carbon fiber, that's not the case, right? And how it fails, the way it fails is just trickier to forecast. Not impossible, but trickier. Uh, and it, since it's built in a built-up process, right? It's almost like a, a paper mache build-up process or a molded process. Uh, when you have components that are built into it, exchanging those components is just more difficult because you kind of have to dig them out or when you cut them out, then you have to rebuild the structure where you're putting the new piece in. So it's just it's just more complicated when you have to make repairs uh, and when you have failures. It's not impossible to deal with, but it's just more complicated, more expensive, and harder to forecast how those repairs will 
behave over time. Uh, Sash and, and Richard, you guys are welcome to weigh in on that. But speaking about engineering excellence, uh, Sash, very quickly bring us up to speed on the Ajax uh, program, uh, the British uh, uh, Army's um, sort of centerpiece vehicle effort uh, that has ended up in becoming none other than a debacle that keeps on giving. Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, Ajax, uh, which is a, um, an armored cavalry vehicle for the British Army, uh, General Dynamics won the uh, contract about seven years ago now, supposedly a, a near military off the shelf uh, variant of the, the Pizarro uh, or Ulan vehicle that General Dynamics builds in Europe for the Spanish and Austrian armies. It's been anything but off the shelf. And um, the entire program in the UK has been a debacle. Uh, as a taxpayer, I rather resent the fact that we've already paid over half the uh, 4.5 billion uh, sterling, and we haven't yet got any working vehicles. Um, but uh, what, you know, the news this week uh, is that the procurement minister, Jeremy Quinn, uh, had commissioned a, um, a health and safety report because there have been reports that the uh, troops involved in the trials of Ajax were suffering from quite significant injuries. Uh, and the report is absolutely horrifying. I mean, you know, here's a vehicle in trials and it is causing um, su such high vibration that some of those uh, soldiers may well have near permanent injuries and it's causing hearing loss. Um, I'm sure a number of our, uh, well, probably quite a high proportion of our uh, listeners have spent at least a little bit of time in armoured vehicles. Um, I, I certainly have. It's not a terribly pleasant environment, but um, I would not have expected to have to debus from from any armoured vehicle I've ever been in before and go straight to the medical officer and report in because I've you know lost my hearing or have got uh, whole body vibration. It's absolutely shocking. And why is this? It's because, frankly, the vehicle, the design is a dud. Uh, General Diamond has done a shockingly bad job. Um, the suspension is very primitive. There was a weight saving exercise, uh, always warring in my unit, you know, such an early stage of the program, which almost certainly accentuated the problem. And the integration of the standard British Army um, communication system has clearly been incredibly ineffective as well. Uh, and I, you know, were Boris Johnson's government not, had, if it had not had a week of crisis, and it's been the worst week for, actually not just the government, but it's been the worst week for Boris Johnson personally. He's had an enormous personal rebellion against his COVID measures in the House of Commons, lost probably one of the safest seats uh, that the Conservative Party had in a by-election, um, and uh, also lost his chief EU negotiator, Lord Frost, uh, because Lord Frost clearly has no confidence in Boris. But, you know, if it had not been such a bad week for Boris Johnson personally, I think that the government would have cancelled Ajax straight off. Uh, that's how bad it is. Um, and, you know, the whole management of the programme, it reflects dreadfully on general dynamics, but if possible, even worse on the army. The army just wanted to get this done and therefore they cut corners. And I hope that some of them are, you know, some of the very senior officers are held responsible for this because it's a chronic uh, waste of money. But, you know, putting soldiers at risk in the trials process, that is not acceptable leadership in my book. Um, let me ask uh, very quickly, Lord Frost's uh, departure, obviously, uh, you know, and you're talking about that seat went to Liberal Democrats, right? I mean, so Labour is not winning these seats. It's the Liberal Democrats who are, who are winning. So they're having the first, you know, the best, best year in a very, very long time, uh, even if you include uh, Nick Clegg in, in terms of clawing back seats. 
uh, and and becoming a player in British politics that people never thought uh, the party would would be able to achieve again. But um, talk to us about what Lord Frost's uh, departure means, because the the timing is right. I mean, negotiations were going better between the EU and the UK, and then news came out that that he was going to leave on the in the beginning of the year. Uh, and that was accentuated after I think it was what the mail that reported his um, the impending departure, and and then so he said, you know, my departure is effective immediately. I think it's incredibly difficult to disentangle the significance of Lotros's departure and the precise timing of it. Um, you're absolutely right. The Liberal Democrats won this seat. The, the Liberal Democrats are the by-election champions. They are, if the Liberal Democrats exist for no other reason in British politics, it's to win by-elections in the most bizarre circumstances and deliver a bloody nose. They're wonderful at it and have been for the whole of my sort of political life. Um, and that is a classic protest vote. The protest vote was about ultimately behaviour or lack of by Boris Johnson personally and and people within his cabinet team. And, you know, whether Lord Frost uh, resigned because of that or because of disagreement over how the Brexit negotiations are going or what, I didn't even know for several weeks, but just pile these up one on top of the other. And uh, Boris Johnson has never been this week. Um, and the Conservative Party is incredibly intolerant of political weakness in its leaders. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't think he's going to make it halfway through next year. Boris Johnson won't make it halfway through next year. That's my bet. I mean, you know, the question is whether he goes before the A3, the A22500 is launched. It's a very close thing in my view. <laughs> uh, and who do you reckon will replace um, Boris? Oh, I haven't, I haven't the fog. I haven't the foggiest. Um, the, 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 the old saying is he who wields the knife doesn't inherit the throne. So whoever stands up as a challenger is probably doing so uh, to let somebody else in. But it's far too early at the moment. Um, uh, you know, d being detached about it, it's going to be great, great soap opera stuff. Um, uh, given uh, great soap opera stuff, I have to remember uh, to ask uh, Ron a, a question before we uh, part for the year. Richard, uh, let's let's go uh, quickly. want to go around the horn with each of you and get your sense on what uh, the, the biggest stories or the most interesting stories uh, were uh, and what they mean for the upcoming year. Our first show of the year is going to take a look at what we think the biggest issues uh, of the year are and our predictions for it. But from, from your guys' standpoint, as we wrap up 2021, uh, aside from Omicron and, uh, Omicron and COVID, which is going to be a gift that unfortunately keeps on giving, but sort of more broadly, what you, you guys all thought were the most interesting stories of the year and why. Go ahead, Richard. Do I just get one? You can have as many as you want, Richard. Right. Super. Okay. For one, uh, I would go with the absolute huge strength of the fighter market. Uh, you know, you look at combat aircraft orders this year for just about everybody. It did great. You know, the as, as in 1957 with the legendary British government white paper, reports of the eclipse of the combat aircraft have been greatly overstated. And it looks like we're going to have a probably a record decade ahead in terms of combat aircraft production. Great business to be in across the board. Next story, I think of huge import is just Airbus powering ahead of Boeing. Boeing cooperating by quietly lying horizontal and Airbus emphasizing production, 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 nothing but optimism, nothing but new products, nothing but uh, getting out there and winning market share and doing pretty well financially too. 
that's a fascinating story in and of itself. Uh, and I think third is the remarkable comeback and, and possibly even durable uh, comeback associated with the business jet market. Just truly remarkable that, you know, when the year began, I, I, I would have thought we would never, we wouldn't see a recovery for three or four years down the road. Quite the opposite. It looks like, if anything, there'll be upward pressure on production rates and prices that uh, get the industry back to where it was probably later this coming year and beyond that growth for a couple of years after that. Let's go in a little bit of uh, reverse order. Uh, Sash, give us yours, and then we'll uh, wrap up with uh, Ron. Honestly, I, I, I can't add anything to what Richard has said there. I think he, 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 picked, uh, he picked those three uh, beautifully. And, and you would say that the biggest is the biggest story in the UK, the implosion of Boris Johnson or the impl- impending uh, end of it, his administration? Yeah, in the UK, it's been a, a catastrophic end to the year so far. Uh, really, really is astonishing that it's taken as long as it has. But alas, uh, pe- people's patience and tolerance sometimes is higher than, <laughs> than than you think, or maybe their interest in in staying in power is uh, is greater. Um, Ron, walk us through the the big issues of the year, and and maybe a question that I should have asked all of you earlier is, uh, and and maybe you can help us with this, is on government. Uh, stimulus as well, but but sort of give us your sense, and I want to wrap it up with uh, actually a stimulus question that just uh, hopped to mind, right? Because uh, uh, Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, has said that he doesn't want the president's, you know, he's not going to support in any manner of the president's uh, $1.75 trillion measure. And there are those who are applauding it. Moderates uh, are applauding it. Certainly Republicans are overjoyed uh, because the Democrats were looking at this as, as uh, helping them in the 22 election. But but more particularly, folks are saying, hey, this frees up one point seven five trillion dollars that we may you know, have to use for more stimulus if, if COVID gets worse. Give us your sense of the year first and then your sense on how the end of the build back better, what, what, what that means sort of more broadly and how the street is likely to, to welcome that. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add to Richard's points, um, like Sash said, I think he picked them uh, pretty darn well would be uh, one, uh, the expectation coming into the year is where you were going to see um, wholesale cuts in defense spending, and we didn't see that, right? Defense spending is actually going up $770 billion is well above, I think, where anybody thought it would be. And then the second point I would add is 787s were supposed to get delivered this year, right? That was kind of in everybody's financial models. That just didn't happen. So I think, sadly, 787 was another you know, story of the year. And then finally, on, on your stimulus question, you know, with the Build Back Better probably gone, you know, what's the street think about that? It, it, from an inflation point of view, on the, the street probably likes it, right? I mean, I mean, I think ultimately most folks on the street think about inflation as a monetary issue. So if you just get less money floating around, that's got to be good for inflation. Um, outside of that, I, I, I guess I don't have a, a heck of a lot to say uh, on it. But uh, I think from an inflation point of view, it's seen as uh, taking some pressure off inflation. Just a really quickly around the horn, is it, are governments... Do are governments going to have to do more stimulus ultimately, or is it still too early to tell? Given that we're still spending, right? I'm, I'm not sure whether or not we've deployed all of the money that was authorized at this point for the stimulus. I'm surprised I don't know the answer to that question, but I remember that we have been passing new measures even when older amounts of money have not yet fully been spent, right? Given, given the kind of the way our system works. Vago, the one, one point I would add is I think one of the fears is 
with more lockdowns happening, that the supply chain issues that were driving inflation, it just makes all that worse, right? So I think one of the, one of the fears that's in, in the minds of most economists right now is if the Omicron thing uh, really does turn out to be not very good, uh, it's just going to put more pressure on inflation and more pressure on supply chains. Uh, as you all know, if you want to go try to buy uh, an oven or whatever, I mean, there's just no inventory. Supply chains are cooked up all over the place. Um, and that just gets worse under a situation where you have more lockdowns. So I think that's a, a, a thing to, to factor. Sash and Richard, any any last thoughts as we wrap up for the year? Yeah, the stimulus thing is interesting. I mean, I, you know, the UK is not an example to anybody or certainly shouldn't be in the world. But actually this this week, uh, in the UK, we've had an interest rate rise, 15 basis points. Um, in, in old money, that's not, that's not terribly impressive. But, you know, interest rate rises are nearly as rare as hen's teeth. Uh, and you said the, the Bank of England is starting to tighten, not to loosen. The pressure politically on the government is to loosen some more and provide stimulus. But so far, even in the face of Omicron, it's not happening. Um, we'll we'll see whether that sort of uh, you know that whether that position actually lasts through into the new year or not. Richard, last word. Well, moments ago, uh, Senator Manchin withdrew support behind the Biden massive social spending package. So I suspect there might not be the traction politically for that kind of spending. Uh, and of course, the real reason for all that stimulus spending at the start of the pandemic was because we thought and we were going into a, uh, as, as Paul Krugman put it, a, a medically induced coma economically. So far, that doesn't seem to be the case this time, as, uh, as my colleagues say, let's, let's wait and see. Very good. Uh, guys, hope you have a terrific holiday. Thanks so very, very much for joining us uh, every week uh, in what has been a difficult year and looking forward to working with you guys uh, in 2022. Have a great holiday, a very happy new year. And if um, events dictate uh, we will ask you to come back on and, and weigh in depending on the magnitude of the news. But until then, uh, we'll see you in the new year. Thanks so very much and all the best to you and yours. Uh, great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, a very happy uh, holiday season to you all. Thank you, Vago. Yes, absolutely. All the best for the holidays and in the new year. And most of all, Vago, thanks so much for doing this. It's been fantastic. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.